The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to fellowship around the Lord's table and to remember the person and work of our Savior, and now to fellowship around the teaching of Your Word. For it is your word that is our spiritual food and our spiritual sustenance. Our Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Father, we realize that learning your word and applying it should be the highest priority in our lives. That it should take precedence over everything else that we do to make sure that above all else our spiritual life is healthy and that we are advancing to spiritual maturity. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it and challenge us with the truths that are here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. There we continue our study of love. Love is perhaps one of the most difficult things for people to understand. We talk about it, we read about it. It is probably the most popular subject in all of human history. People love love. Often they fall in love not because they are truly in love with another person, but because they are in love with being in love. We, it is the subject of film, it's the subject of poems, it's the subject of novels. It even has its own uh, genre of novel, the romance novel. Everyone loves to talk about love, and yet with so much discussion about love, it is amazing that so little is said of true substance about love. There is much that is misunderstood about love, and you see that from everywhere, from churches that ought to know better, to um, many films and movies and romance comedies on television and everything else. There's such distortion and emphasis where today emotion is the dominant idea whenever anybody thinks about love, and since, of course, emotion uh, is something that comes and goes and changes with the day almost, uh, that affects marriages. And so marriages that are built upon a superficial and false concept of love often do not last long. And as soon as the winds of adversity begin to blow upon that marriage, as soon as one partner or the other does something that shocks, offends, upsets the other one, then it's so easy to just throw the whole thing away without understanding that that's not, that would indicate that there was never any love there 
or at least no understanding of what love really is from the beginning of that marriage. Love is something that is profoundly evidenced by us in what our Lord did at the cross, and that has to be our starting point. 1 John 2, 7-11 through 11 is the last paragraph in John's introduction to the epistle. There's a brief prologue in the first five verses, in our first four verses of the first chapter, and then from 1-5 down through 2-11 we have the introduction. In these verses, from 1-5 to 2-11, John introduces the basic ideas, the basic themes that will be the focus, the thrust of this epistle. And as I have said again and again, this epistle is his commentary under the inspiration ministry of God the Holy Spirit of Jesus' discourse in the upper room the night before he went to the cross. In these verses, 1 John 2, 7-11, he introduces the theme of love. Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, that is, it's not new, I've taught it to you before, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning, that is, the beginning of your Christian life, the beginning of my ministry with you. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment, new, not in the sense uh, that he just is contradicting himself, but it is the new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35, that a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So he is writing and developing this new commandment for them, which is true in him, that's the starting point in Christ, and that is how we understand it in his example, in his life, in the way he uh, died on the cross as a substitute for us, those of us who were sinners, all mankind in rebellion to God, obnoxious to Him, and not in any way uh, uh, positive toward Him. Which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That began with Jesus Christ, who is the light who came into the world, but men rejected Him according to the prologue to John's Gospel. 1 John 2, 9, the one who says He is in the light. And this in 1 John 2, 9-11 through 11, we see the first example of many in this epistle where he helps us to understand what love is. The one who says he is in light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Antagonism, conflict, hatred, other mental attitudes, sins such as jealousy, envy, bitterness are all antithetical to love. The one on the other hand... The one who loves his brother abides in the light. The contrast is here between the believer in fellowship, the one out of fellowship. The one out of fellowship does not love, does not practice love. He may have great feelings, he may be attracted to someone, but he does not love. Love can only function under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. That is biblical love. That's what we have to understand as believers. We've all grown up in a culture that talks a lot about love. And unbelievers have something they call love, but as I have, and I, as I have last time and will again by way of review, uh, look at the, the de- definition of love in the, in the dictionary. Obviously, unbelievers do something they call love. That's not what Jesus is talking about, because what we're, we're going to see is the love that characterizes a believer's life is a love that goes above and beyond anything that the unbeliever can do. Remember, anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the Christian life. The kind of love that is to characterize the believer is so profound, so unique, so distinct, so above and beyond anything that the unbeliever can counterfeit, 
that it is the unique mark of the advancing, mature believer in the church age. So in 1 John 2.10, John writes, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, that is, in the cosmic system, out of fellowship, dominated by the sin nature, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is. That means that in terms of his thinking, he is blinded. He can't have objectivity. He can only operate on subjectivity. He cannot understand what the issues are, especially when it comes to relationships especially when it comes to marriage, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's going to be overwhelmed by his own lust patterns, his own sin nature, his own distortions, his own arrogance. And so with that, we are introduced to the concept of love, which we call impersonal or unconditional love. Love demands many different adjectives in order to help us understand it. I made the point last time that, that whenever we talk about something, I always like to begin with a definition. Try to understand the meaning of words. Words are important. God, even God thought in words before he ever created everything. When Jesus is referred to as the pre-incarnate deity, he is called the Lagos, the word. Words are important. We communicate with words, not just with uh, amorphous feelings. We, communication is always based on clear, distinct words. God thought and things, and he spoke words, and everything came into existence. So we have to begin with definitions, and love especially, above almost anything else, demands clear definition. We talk about it so much, we ought to know what we're talking about. But when we start looking around, it's fascinating that there's so little decent definitions given. Even the Scripture doesn't define it. The Scripture characterizes it again and again, describing it, illustrating it, picturing it for us in parables and other uh, situations so that we can understand all of its dimensions. Understanding impersonal love is crucial to understanding First John because the verb is used 28 times. The verb agapao is used 28 times in the epistle and the noun agape is used 18 times. That's 46 times the writer mentions love. 46 times the writer mentions love which indicates that it is major theme in the epistle. In fact, that means that 1 John is probably the most clear exposition of what Jesus meant when he said, you are to love one another as I have loved you. So we will spend a lot of time talking about love, so we need to introduce it well. Now, by way of review last time, I went through a definition. Definition of love to understand it. Now, we spent a lot of time on this last time, and I'm not going to if I spend as much time on it this time, we'll get just as far as we did the last time, which wasn't very far. So we're just going to hit the high points to re- refresh your memory. John, it's getting warm in here. First of all, as a working definition, love is a mental attitude which de- desires the best for its object. It's not an emotion. It understands objectivity. The, to desire the best for the, the person you love means you have to have objectivity, not what you want, but what's best for them. That also implies that you understand something about values. You have an objective, external scale of values that allows you to understand what is truly best for somebody else. Now, in arrogance, a lot of us think we know what's best for somebody else. But that's not love, that's arrogance, that's self-absorption, and that's control. So only on the basis of a tremendous amount of doctrine in our soul where we 
have an objective frame of reference based on the Word of God, can we truly love somebody and be able to understand that which is best in a person's life? Second thing we noted was that love was notoriously difficult to define and that this is evidenced even in Webster's Third International Dictionary definition of the word love. There we read, One, the attraction, desire, or affection for a person who arouses delight or admiration or elicits tenderness, sympathetic interest, or benevolence. It's devoted affection. Secondly, the dictionary states it's warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. And third, the benevolence attributed to God resembling a father's affection for his children. Just a note there, I observed last time that that third definition approaches making love an anthropopathism even. Even the dictionary recognizes how difficult it is to define God's love. But in this definition, we realize the problem in defining God's love. If it's attraction or affection felt for a person who arouses delight or admiration, that doesn't fit with John 3.16. For God so loved the world. God loved the world because we, He admired us, because he, we were attractive to Him, because He felt affection for us, because we were so wonderful. It's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says that all we like sheep had gone astray. We turned everyone to His own way. That God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were hostile to Him. So while we were at enmity with Him, God still demonstrated His love towards us. We were obnoxious to Him. He could not have rapport with us or find anything attractive in us because we were completely corrupted by sin. So that means that the basis for divine love is not in the object of love, not in mankind, not in the creature. The basis for divine love is in the character of God. And since God is perfectly righteous, that means that His love has absolute virtue and integrity. And without virtue and integrity... There can be no love, because a love that is absent of virtue and integrity is a love that operates purely on arrogant self-absorption principles. A love that operates on me first and not the other person first. A love that is not grounded in objectivity, but subjectivity. So we find that that is the problem with the definition, is that what man experiences as love cannot be the frame of reference because it is... Uh, it, is, it has too many vagaries. Fourth, two categories or expressions of divine love manifest themselves. The first is, we saw last week, God's personal love. That has always existed. See, love is, when we talk about God's love, it's a complex. There are different manifestations of it. His personal love is the love that was always present in the, in the Trinity. The love of God the Father for God the Son because God the Father is perfect righteousness and God the Son is perfect righteousness. So there was, there, there's a perfect virtue there on the part of the, the lover and the receiver of love. And so throughout all eternity because God uh, is immutable, God the Father never changes, God the Son never changes, throughout all eternity there is perfect love between Father and Son. And then there is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also perfect righteousness. So there is perfect personal love between the lover and the object of love, God the Father and the Spirit, God the Son and the Spirit. So in the Trinity, you have a perfect community of personal love existing throughout all eternity so that the Scriptures can emphasize in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16 that God is love. And I made the point again last time, I made the point last time and again this morning 
Understand this. This is one of the strongest evidences for the ultimate reality of the scriptural teaching on Trinitarianism. Because everybody wants to claim that somehow God is love. Everybody's so much in love with love. The, the um, uh, Muslims want Allah to be love. The Jehovah's Witnesses want Allah to be love. I mean, want their God to be love. But in those instances, the gods of the Jehovah's Witness, the gods of the Muslims, is a singular monotheism. They only have one God. There is no multiplicity of personality throughout all eternity. Therefore, the love of their God is a love that is dependent on a creature for its function. Now, one of the foundational concepts in the biblical doctrine of God is that God is independent. He is not dependent on His creation or on creatures for anything ever. For God to be dependent on a creature or on something in His creation to be who He is means that He's not God by definition. So God is independent of everything. That means that God's love for a God to be truly loved, there must be a multiplicity of personality so that there can be loving and reception of love throughout all eternity. And you have that in a triune God. You do not have that in a singular or Unitarian monotheism. So that is a major problem for Islam. It is a major problem for Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a major problem for Unitarians. In other words, calling God's love is just talk. It can't be reality because it's a logical fallacy. That's one reason why you can't make expressions of God's love, such as grace, such as mercy, ultimate absolutes. When we talk about God's essence, we talk about the ten attributes of the essence box. Those are like primary colors. They are always present in God forever. God's sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's love. He's eternal. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, veracity, and immutability. That's who God is. That is, Those characteristics are all independent, but they have various expressions. For example, immutability is expressed as faithfulness. We can always count on God to do the same thing every time. Love, too, has its expressions. Grace is one expression of God's love. But grace is dependent upon a creature. Grace is defined as undeserved blessing, unearned merit. Now, that implies that the object of grace doesn't deserve it. That, would imply, that in further implies that the object of grace is less than righteous. The object of grace is therefore a creature. And, and for God to, to say that grace is an attribute of God is to say that, God, that an attribute of God is dependent upon a creature for its function. Now you've destroyed the independence of what theologians call the aseity of God. And that is dangerous. So grace, mercy, this is rec- has been recognized by theologians throughout the centuries. Grace and mercy are expressions of his love but they are not attributes at the same level that divine love is. Impersonal love is furthermore is that second category or expression of God's love that is rooted in the character of God and is expressed toward creatures. Impersonal love implies that the object of love is not worthy or deserving of love. It's a love that is not based on personal knowledge or personal relationship. 
It is a love that is based on the character and attributes of the one loving. And it has nothing to do with the attributes of the one who is being loved. God loves us not because of who we are, not because we have some wonderful personality or we're so nice and God's looking forward to spending eternity talking to us because we're such marvelous conversationalists. God loves us because of who He is and of what Christ did on the cross. And that's the pattern for impersonal love as we see in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. His love is the pattern, it's the model, the archetype, the prototype of love. If we ever talk about love in any conversation, it must drive us back to John 3.16. That's the starting point for understanding what love is in all, in all of its characteristics and dimensions. This is what, why Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The standard is as Christ loved us. The standard is Christ's devotion to us. Christ, uh, the work that he did on the cross, his sacrifice. And it is by this, by our expression of that kind of love towards one another, that all men will know that we are his students, his disciples. We are the ones who are learning doctrine and applying doctrine. So its ultimate expression is in impersonal love. So we have to understand some characteristics, and that's where we concluded last time, looking at these characteristics, which I'll review briefly. Impersonal love is impossible, but God doesn't mandate the impossible without providing the means of accomplishment, and that's the Holy Spirit. He is the one who produces that fruit in us. That's why the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Impersonal love, secondly, is the hallmark of the believer. It is that above all else that distinguishes the believer who is truly maturing and following and applying doctrine from the unbeliever. Third, it's the basis for solving problems in human relationships. Human relationships will never be what they can be because you're always involved with somebody else who is an arrogant, self-absorbed sinner just like yourself. And the only way to get past the natural inclination and drive of the sin nature to be arrogant and self-absorbed is to have a standard outside of us that calls us to a higher standard and gives us the ability to fulfill that mandate. Never forget this in your marriage. You are married to a lousy, rotten, corrupt sinner. And so are they. <laughs> and so many couples forget that, especially young couples and newlyweds. They forget the fact that in those first five to ten years, you're learning how to deal with one another's sin natures. And especially with young couples, you're advancing and growing. You're still maturing. Most people who are getting married in their 20s, I think most people ought to wait till they're at, at least beyond 25, get college, get schooling behind you, get figure out what your career is. Remember, ladies, you're called as a wife to be a helper to your husband. If you don't know where he wants to go, how do you know you want to help him get there? So wait until he has some idea of where he's going in life before you commit to marry him. Um, in human relationships, you're always dealing with a sinner, and in, the, in your 20s, you're both still maturing. You're both still trying to understand your priorities in life and you're growing together. And so there needs to be an extra amount of grace and an extra amount of impersonal love as you both 
go through those hurdles. The sad thing is, is that in your 20s, very few people understand what grace and impersonal love are all about. So, impersonal love is the necessary element for a truly successful marriage. One that will last 50 or 60 years and still have the joy about it after 50 or 60 years that it had in the first 50 or 60 hours. Impersonal love is the ability to accept all people as they are, warts and all, despite all their problems, all their difficulties, all their blemishes. It's not merely the absence of mental attitude sins, the absence of prejudice and the presence of genuine concern, but also, excuse me, it's not merely the absence of mental attitude sin and the absence of prejudice, but it is the presence of a genuine concern, a compassion, kindness, gentleness, a regard and a solicitousness for even those who may be treating us the worst. Impersonal love will have no stability or strength without grace orientation or doctrinal orientation. So if you're a baby believer, it's going to vacillate a lot. You're struggling to learn these things and apply them. Some days you're doing well, some day, other days you're not. But it is through impersonal love and reaching spiritual maturity that we develop the capacity for life, love, and happiness in every dimension of life. Now last time we began by looking at some scriptures and we looked at Luke 10, 25 to 37 which is the episode, the parable that Jesus tells about the good Samaritan, the one who came by and saw the person who had been robbed or mugged, left by the side of the road, and how he not only helps him and takes him to a hospital, showing that he's he's not just an absence of mental attitude sins, he doesn't walk by and just say, oh, I'll go call somebody, but he takes time, he gives of his own time, he gives of his own resources, he makes sure that the person who has been um, left by the side of the road when he gets to the hospital he comes back the next day he shows him mercy takes care of him gives him money for food gives him clothes for his back it, it, it's a positive thing it is a kindness a gentleness it's reaching out and not expecting anything in return it's not based on even knowledge the, the Samaritan did not know anything about the person in the ditch that's why we call it impersonal love it doesn't mean that that it's not warm it means that it doesn't necessitate a personal relationship with the individual. It doesn't mean that you have to get rid of the personal relationship in order to exercise it either. Or to distance yourself. Now, at the conclusion of that, I want to look at the foundation passages that are mentioned in the Old Testament and its quotation in the New Testament, which comes from Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 is the Old Testament counterpart to the New Testament command. But there are some vital differences. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, says the Lord. This is reiterated in two other passages in the New Testament, Galatians 5.14 and James 2.8. There we have a repetition of the Old Testament commandment. But it's important to note that in the context of Galatians 5 and James 2.8, the writers are talking to people influenced by Jews or who are Jewish. James is writing to a Jewish believers who understand the demands of the Old Testament law and he's talking about its application. And the basic argument in both places is you can't even do that. How can you step to the plate on the new commandment? On your own. It can only be fulfilled through the Holy Spirit. 
We closed last time with a comparison between the Old Testament standard and the New Testament standard. The Old Testament, the command is addressed to Israel composed of believer and unbeliever. So it's a lower standard. It's a standard that even unbelievers can be expected to measure up to. Even an unbeliever loves himself to some degree. He's self-absorbed. He's arrogant. But the scriptures clearly teach several places that the unbeliever has a love for himself. It's not nearly as high as virtuous as God's love, but it is a love for himself. In Ephesians chapter 5, when men are commanded to love their wives, they are told, for no man hates his own flesh. That's a gnomic principle. Nobody hates their own flesh. Now, you always have somebody comes along and says, well, they, they hated themselves so much, they, were, uh, they, they cut themselves or they abused themselves or they committed suicide. Well, the reason they did all of that was not because they didn't love themselves, but because they loved themselves so much they disappointed themselves. Because the Scripture says everybody loves himself. The problem with man isn't low self-esteem, it's wrong self-esteem. You know, modern psychology has, orient, has located the problem in the wrong place. And, you know, it's funny. If you have the wrong problem, you're going to have the wrong solution. And uh, even if you correctly identify the problem, be careful. There are a lot of people who can correctly identify the problem, but just because they've identified the problem correctly, don't think that they have the right solution either. There's only one solution, and that's the divine solution. Leviticus 19.18 is addressed to believer and unbeliever, but the command in John 13 is to the believer only. It's a higher standard that cannot be met on just normal human resources. It takes an additional resources. In John 13, in the context of the upper room discourse, we're going to be introduced to the concept of abiding in Christ, which is tantamount to walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. So there's a supernatural basis for fulfilling this command. The command is to love in both places. The object of love in the Old Testament is to love your neighbor. Neighbor is defined as any other human being. Believer or unbeliever. But in John 13, the standard is ratcheted up a couple of notches to loving other believers. Now, that's not always easy because we all know other believers that, well, we'd just rather not know, not, not know them and not be forced to have a relationship with them. But we are to love one another without exception as Christ loved us. You can't do that on your own. You can't sit there in church and have somebody tell you to turn around and hug the person behind you and tell them that you love them and feel all warm about them. That just isn't going to happen, and it's silly, and it's superficial, and it happens every Sunday across the country. And it's just another one of the reasons people have a diluted and distorted view of love. We're to love one another. This is as Christ loved the church. That's the standard in the Old Testament. It's as yourself. That's a rather low standard. Anybody can achieve that. But we're to love one another, even those obnoxious believers that we know might be married to or might have as a parent or as a child. We are to love them. Now, I want everybody to maintain a poker face on that. I don't want any of your parents, you know, letting us, everybody else know about your problems with your kids. We're to love one another as Christ loved you, as Christ loved the church. Now, that brings us to some important observations about love. First of all, love is objective. It's not subjective. It is objective, and it has an objective model. It's not based, therefore, on your perceptions, my perceptions, your feelings, my feelings, 
or the circumstances of the moment. It's based on an objective model that's available to all, and we all look to that model to understand what love is. Second thing, it's not the symbol of the cross. Some people just, I'm dealing here with the ascetics and asceticism that's becoming so popular today. People think that that it's somehow represented by symbols. It's not something that's just represented by a symbol. Third, it's not emotion. It's not sentimentality. When we look at the command to love one another as Christ loved us, Jesus didn't come down with a bunch of goo and just... uh, uh, cry all over us. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. It's not emotion. It's not sentimentality. It's not some feeling of warm fuzzies. It has to do with action. It has to do with integrity and virtue. Fourth, it is based on character. It's based on virtue and integrity that goes beyond anything that can be produced in the normal human realm. It's developed from walking by the Holy Spirit. That's why Galatians 5 In Galatians 5.14, you have a quotation of Leviticus 19.18, to love one another as you love yourself. And then from there, Paul develops his argument by saying you need to walk by means of the Spirit so you won't bring to completion the deeds, the lust of the flesh. And then he lists what those are. And in the middle of that, it's all kinds of personal problems, divisiveness, uh, schism, uh, immorality, all these interpersonal problems. And then... After discussing the results of walking by the sin nature, he says, but in contrast, the fruit, the production of the Holy Spirit, the result of walking by means of the Spirit, the fruit is, first of all, love. That's why love's at the first of that list. He's not listing it in an order of development. He's not listing it in any other way other than he's talking about love. So the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And all of this describes the character that undergirds love. And goes along with love. So it's developed from walking by the Spirit and based on the example of God's love for fallen, rebellious mankind. It is, despite the cliche that is developed around it, it is thinking, what would Jesus do? But the problem with the cliche is most Christians are so biblically ignorant about the character and operation of Christ that when they think of what would Jesus do, what they're thinking about is their own subjective, distorted, emotional concept of what somebody they think Jesus is would do and doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. You see, most people run around, they create some image of God in their mind and then they try to live up to it. That's called idolatry. And this superficiality that goes along... I always have a problem with reducing anything of biblical import to a T-shirt. You know, we trivialize God in America and that's tragic. It borders on blasphemy. And uh, I understand people, you know, the witness wear thing, and I understand the, you know, the good motivation underlying it. But years ago, a friend of mine was witnessing to a Jew, and the Jew made the comment, and he could never get anywhere with him because he said, you know, as a Jew, we would never reduce God to a billboard. And the point he was making was that we have respect for God. We're not going to trivialize him and put him on a bumper sticker or put him on a billboard or put him on a T-shirt. God is God. He is the creator of heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And we need to elevate him, not bring him down to the lowest common denominator. So, that's my problem with all the witness where and what would Jesus do. But that is, that does express the principle. 
It is, what would Jesus do? But you better understand doctrine, and you better understand basic Christology, and you need to understand the impeccability of Christ and the integrity of God before you can ever correctly answer the question, what would Jesus do? Point five, the commandment to love one another challenges the unbeliever. The unbeliever can't do it. The unbeliever won't understand it. The unbeliever is going to look at you and say, why in the world are you making yourself vulnerable, putting yourself in that situation? Why in the world are you treating that person that way when they treat you the way they do? How can that be? The unbeliever can't do it, can't imitate it, can't counterfeit it. They will try, but it always falls apart. Point six, verse 35 emphasizes that the world knows this. Somehow they know this. There is a presupposition there that they have an inherent understanding of that. And when they see this kind of love operational in the believer, it strikes a chord in their soul and they respond to it. They might react to it if they're negative volition, but if they're positive, they'll respond to it. It is the greatest evidence of Christianity that there is. This is the highest apologetic. Apologetic is not an apology. It is a defense. And in the correct sense of the term, it is a demonstration of the veracity or the truth of something. And the greatest demonstration of the truth of Christianity that we ever see is when the love of God is manifested in our lives so that when people look at a believer and they see that transformed character into the character of Christ, that is the greatest statement of the veracity of Christianity that we can see outside of the Scriptures. And point seven, which is the point I just made, it is the greatest apologetic for our faith. Now, Jesus does not stop talking about the new commandment in John 13, but before he closes out the upper room discourse, he returns to that theme in John 15, uh, verse 12. There he states, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. That brings in a sacrificial element that one is willing to put one's own personal life, personal agenda, personal ambitions aside in order to do that which is best for another person. Then Jesus said in verse 14, You are my friends. See, He just said He's going to lay down His life for a friends, and now He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, that's not legalism. That is showing that there is a closer relationship there than simply impersonal love. But that the one who loves him, John fifteen fifteen, he goes on and he says, or back in John fourteen, he hit, let me back up. In John fifteen fourteen, says, "You are my friends if you do what I command you." Because in John fourteen, he said, "If you love me, you do my commands. You do what I command you." So obedience to God is the evidence of love for Him. It's not how you feel. It's not going out of church, having sung some wonderful uh, foot tapping foot stomping uh, music and uh, getting the adrenaline going so we all feel good and everybody turning around and hugging everybody and feeling all warm about it. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not love. To reduce that to love to that superficial level damages our understanding of Scripture. 
I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with having fun and having good, good music and lively music at times in the right place and under the right circumstances, but that doesn't generate love. Love is something more profound than that, and Jesus says it's evidenced by obedience to Him. So if we obey Him, we love Him, then that enters into that closer dimension of rapport with Him comparable to abiding in Christ. John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. This is not referring to the doctrine of election, but the choice of these eleven as his disciples. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in the Father in my name he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. This is an astounding concept in the New Testament. And one that too often we brush past too quickly simply because it is so profound and so difficult. So as I've stated, the starting point is always the cross. And so we have to look at the characteristics of the love demonstrated in the cross if we are going to begin to understand the kind of love that should characterize our lives. Eight characteristics. First, it is an initiating love. It's not a love that waits for the other person to initiate. God the Father's love for us began in eternity past, before God created any creature. He had a plan, and in that plan, based on His omniscience, He knew all of the knowable. He knew Adam would sin. He knew the human race would fall. And God devised a plan to redeem mankind. He initiated. We, are, we love because He first loved us, 1 John 4 states. We love because He first loved us. It is an initiating love. Now, just a side note for you husbands, you need to be thinking about some of these things in terms of application. Because this is the same love that is commanded of husbands. That just brings it down into a little more practical application. It's an initiating love. Second, it is an aggressive love. God seeks us out. He asserts His love with confidence and boldness in human history. It doesn't operate from a position of weakness that is trying to curry favor or generate approbation. It is a love that is directed towards achieving an object. And that object is not merely salvation of the lost, but also conforming us to the image of His Son and removing every vestige of sin and the curse of sin from mankind. Third, it is a love that is humble. This is a love that is humble. It is not an arrogant love. It is not a self-seeking love. He's not seeking His own personal glory. Jesus Christ said He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. It is a love that is seeking to serve its object with what's best for the object, not a love that is seeking self-glorification. Fourth, it is a love that is intense. It is a love that is intense. It's not a superficial or shallow love. It is a zealous determination to achieve the goal of salvation despite all obstacles. Even so, so much that when Jesus and the disciples left the upper room to go 
to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told, the, now this isn't politically correct, but this is, but God's never politically correct. Jesus told the disciples to bring a couple of swords with them. He wanted his disciples armed. Today he would have said, bring the Uzis. He wanted to make sure that no matter what Satan did, in order nothing could stop him from dying the kind of death he had to die on the cross. You see, it was very possible that the Roman soldiers or the temple guards could have tried to just execute him or kill him right there on the spot. That somebody else, somebody might have just lost their head like Peter did and tried to kill him there so he needed defense because he couldn't die anyway. He had to die on the cross. So he, he took the necessary means to achieve the object. It was an intensity. He was goal-oriented in his love. There's a steadfast loyalty there. God is loyal to his character. He's loyal to his promises to man to redeem him. And he is, is loyal to his word so that he accomplishes what he sets out to accomplish despite the fact that man rejects him continuously. We've seen that in our study in Judges in the morning, the early hour. Again and again, man rebels, man rejects, man turns his back on God. And yet God is loyal to his promises to save man And he continues to deliver man and continues to provide salvation despite rejection and man's continuous hostility toward him. Sixth, it is a love that is consecrated. Jesus Christ set himself apart to a task and he was not going to be distracted from that task. He focuses on the task at hand and he realizes, I'm sure that there were many other things he could have done on earth. After all, he could have healed many more people, given sight to many other blind people, restored many other lepers to health, but he didn't. He did that which was necessary to achieve his goal, which mankind. And he was not distracted either by giving in to sin. Seventh, it is a love that is characterized by dedication. Jesus Christ committed himself to the task of service, sacrifice, salvation, and our sanctification. He lived his life based on the filling of the Holy Spirit in order to be the prototype for our spiritual life in the church age. And then the eighth and final word that characterizes the love is that it is a devoted love. Devotion means to give or apply one's time, attention, and self to a task. And he gave of himself a 100% to the task of our salvation. So if these, th- these characteristics were part of his impersonal love for us, then they are to be a part of our impersonal love for those who do not deserve it, those who may be uh, hostile to us, those who may be uh, angry with us, those who may despise and hate us, and those who may treat us poorly. This is why Jesus can say that you are to uh, bless those who persecute you and pray for your enemies is because there is this undergirding of impersonal love characterized by the fact that it it initiates. Even when the object is negative and hostile, you initiate. It's aggressive. It doesn't stop. It doesn't give up. It is motivated by and undergirded by humility, not arrogance. It's intense. It's not passive. It's steadfastly loyal to truth. 
It's consecrated. It's a love that's set apart. It's determined. It's dedicated. And it is devoted. All of these characterize impersonal love. Now, next time we're going to come back and look at another passage that describes and gives biblical characteristics in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, describing more aspects of impersonal love with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that your love for us is not based on who we are or what we've done, but on who you are and what Christ did for us. That as we look at the love you've displayed to us, we could spend days and weeks thinking about all of its dimensions and all of its facets. And it is this love that you have mandated of us and a love that we barely can comprehend or understand, but a love that you manufacture in us as a result of our continuous dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Father, may we not forget what the example is and what the mandate is, and that this runs sometimes against everything in our soul because we are so committed to autonomy and arrogance. And yet, nevertheless, you have stated that this is the ultimate witnessing tool at our disposal. Our own testimony lived out through a life based on impersonal love. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that right now they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose on the third day, that He is the one who demonstrated God's love to us by dying for us. He did everything. We do nothing. It's a love that's not based on who we are or what we've done, but on who He is and what He did on the cross. And right now, right where you sit, you can make that salvation yours by simple faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the example of Christ's love for us and that we might be moved towards greater demonstration of this in our lives as we think doctrinally. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.